Right. Thank you, Rick. Ladies and gentlemen, that is, for the record, uh, that is Rick Terrell, not Rick Terrell. Okay, Rick Terrell. For the first 10 years of our relationship, I called him Rick Terrell, and every day his wife would say, tell him it's Terrell, tell him it's Terrell. Um, Rick Terrell, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, um, there's a few bald spots here, not on your heads, but in our, in our worshiping space. Uh, if you're new, a lot of times I, I preach from a stool. Um, the reason why, like I, um, I just, I, I want to just sit and, and, and have a chat with you, like as people that I love and people that I care for and people that are dear to me. Um, I don't want to stand behind anything. I just want there to be as few barriers as possible between me and you. But even still, like being up here, I feel like it's so far away, um, especially for those in the back. So can we... Uh, we did this in the first service too, but can we do some musical chairs? And especially if you're used to, I'm, I always sit in the back, I'm a sit back jack kind of guy. Can we stand and can we fill in these spots? There's some great, uh, look at that, three rows right here that are open. Can we do that? Let's, let's migrate. Everyone stand up, everyone stand up, everyone stand up. Say hi to a few people and then let's, uh, let's migrate. Let's make ourselves feel a little bit warmer in this. As you pass by people, as you pass by people, uh, give them a hug. Thanks, Sean. Yeah. All right. All right. A uh, couple weeks back, when when I was a uh, when I was away and I was traveling, uh, this is much nicer, isn't it? So much love now, uh, and. People who are coming in late can find a seat really easily. Uh, we, we had a couple of our harvesters, Dan Fon and, and Jenny Moon, who are um, just really awesome at what they do in, in the workplace uh, for, uh, for their respective companies. Uh, they said, hey, you know, there's a lot of folks who are, seem to be looking for work and looking for jobs, and so we wanted to kind of provide a resource to help them with resumes, and they've gotten a lot of people placed in, in jobs. And, and as uh, we're kind of talking about debriefing, debriefing the time, one of the things that they said was, yeah, you know what, I think what we can uh, really help people in is being able to interview because uh, typically Asians, we have a hard time selling ourselves, being like, yeah, you know what, I'm like awesome at what I do, and as Christians, it's hard for us to do that also. So um, they're just kind of saying, I don't know if that's why, but he said, you know, it seems like we're a little bit hesitant to talk and to speak well of ourselves. It reminded me of an interview that uh, a UCF graduate, he was a senior, he was a graduating uh, student at UCF engineering, kind of top of the class, really uh, had an impressive academic record. He was applying at at Lockheed, was interviewing at Lockheed Martin, and uh, the interviewer was asking him questions and was pretty impressed with uh, the interviewing that had happened. And so at the end of the interview, the HR person said to, to the applicant, said, so what are you thinking in terms of uh, compensation, in terms of starting salary? And he said, I was thinking maybe about, you know, 200000 uh, depending, you know, depending on the benefits. <laughs> right. The interviewer looked at him and looked over the resume and said, how does, uh, I don't know, eight weeks paid vacation, 14 paid holidays, uh, stock options, full retirement will match everything, and... Um, Maybe we can give you, how about every two years you get a, a, a new car leased to you. We'll, we'll start with a Lexus. How's that sound to you? And the guy looked at the HR lady, and he's like, you're kidding me. And she said, yeah, I'm kidding. <laughs> but you started it. <laughs> you started it. 
what did he do right? What did he do wrong? He was wrong in his evaluation of himself and what he thought his worth was, but he was absolutely right in asking about the benefits because you all know if you're working in the corporate world that your compensation is not merely based on what you do or what you, uh, on the paycheck at the end of two weeks or one week, but it's based on the benefits that you get. Right? That's why people... That's why people love, you know, places like Google. Uh, Google is not just about the salary, but there's all these benefits that come along with working. And, you know, there's all these, uh, these, these things on the Internet where you can see all the fine things about working at Google. And there's some negative things about it, too. But uh, if you work at Google, they ha- they'll commute you in for free. You can have three gourmet meals a day for free. Like, that's crazy. Like, really nice stuff. You can get smoothies for free. There's a rock climbing wall. There's a gym. There's a bowling alley in there. Like, this is really, it's almost as good as working at our church. But, you know, there's a lot of cool things, a lot of perks to working at, at, at Google. I found out that, well, you can bring dogs into work as well. But this is one of the, I don't know if this is a cool thing, but this is huge. If you're working at Google and you die, you, you obviously don't get many benefits, but your family will, right? So if your husband or wife passes away while working at Google for the next 10 years, you will get half of their salary every year for 10 years. Like, that's crazy. And then if you've got kids who are dependents under 20 years old, I think, then every kid you've got, you get $1,000 a month. Like, this is wild stuff. Uh, if, you're, if you're a father and you're the primary caregiver of a child, when a child is born, you get 18 weeks of paternity leave. Otherwise, it's six. I think moms get you know, six months or something like that. It's really, really nice stuff. And the more you work at Google, I think the more you begin to realize the benefits that come with working there are not limited to what you get on a paycheck. The benefits package is huge. And if you don't understand the benefits that come to you for being a Googler or a Google employee, then you're missing out on a whole chunk of what they offer to you as part of the Google family. The same thing is true when it comes to Christianity. We've talked about the bad news, and this is the situation of our broken world, and what's wrong, with it? The, the, what's wrong with it is sin, but what did God do about it? He sent his son Jesus in order to live the life that we couldn't live, and then he died on the cross, the death that you and I deserve, so that we might have life, that we might have salvation, but a lot of people sitting in churches today think that their Christian experience and the benefits that come with it are limited to the fact that my past is forgiven and I've got a future in heaven And, oh, yeah, I've got a purpose for a living, but that's all we think it is sometimes. And so what I want to do today as we finish up this quick four-week flyover in the book of Romans is to allow Paul to be your HR representative and to tell you the benefits that you have as part of the package of being a child of God, of being part of the family of God. We're going to read from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39, and this passage has given so much hope and so much life to so many people. This was my favorite chapter to read in the Bible in college, and it probably still remains to be uh, remains the same. Uh, several weeks ago, my uncle, uh, my uncle, my father's oldest brother, went home to be with the Lord. Uh, he was a faithful, faithful uh, servant of God and, and man of God. And as he was getting sicker and as his condition was getting worse, and he knew that it was time, right? Uh, his strength is failing. The end draw is near. My time has come. It, it was during those days that he requested, whether it be a pastor, his wife, or other people, to just read out of Romans chapter 8. And with his eyes closed, uh, he would shed tears as he would hear the unshakable 
and indestructible promises of hope found in Romans 8 that give confidence and comfort in death as well as in life. So what do we see here? What do we see here? Word of God, people of God, Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, in all things, good and bad, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life. He's at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Powerful, life-altering kind of promises here. This is awesome. What do we see? Many, many things that we see. I just want to kind of break it down into three things here. The first thought is this. First promise for the child of God is that everything will ultimately turn out for your good. Okay? Everything will ultimately turn out for your good. Uh, Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things. Okay, you, you see this, this, this language of all things again in verse 37. Know in all these things. Okay, what kind of things is he talking about? Well, he just talked about a bunch of them. Shall trouble or hardship or nakedness or famine or darkness or so, persecution, all of these things. He says in all things, good things and bad things, he works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. So here's what he's saying. Okay, this massive, massive promise, okay, the, the shelter of this huge promise that cancer and sickness and runaway children and that, that, that hardship and persecution and death all fall under this umbrella that God is saying, if you're a child of God, loved by me and you love me, then nothing that happens in life falls outside of this shelter and that all of these things will work together ultimately for your good. What he's not saying is, hey, Hey, everyone, everyone, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe in me or not, whether you're an atheist or a Christian, hey, whoever you are, there's going to be good things and there's going to be bad things that happen. But you know what? Don't worry about it because it'll all work out together. It's all going to work out okay. Just look on the bright side. You know, you take the lumps and the law of averages is going to lead you to a good place. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, listen, if you're not a follower, if you're not mine, if you're not in the family of God, if you're not in the Google family, you don't get to eat these three meals for free. He's saying if you're outside of the family of God, then this promise is not for you. 
If you're outside of the family of God, you might get butter thrown in your face. You might get eggs thrown at you. You might get flour thrown in your face. You might get salt thrown in your face. But only for the people of God is there a promise that there will be a cake at the end. This is only for the people of God. In all these things, God works together for the good of those who love him. So what does that mean? What does it mean that it works out for the good? Because if you ask a bunch of different people, a bunch of different people have a bunch of different answers as to what good is, right? You ask one little girl who sings a song on uh, somewhere in Switzerland or in Europe twirling around. She says, raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, something and something and warm woolen mittens, something else, something else with strings attached. These are a few of my favorite things. But you ask me, that's not the good life to me. Somebody might say, here's the good life, man. If I could just have my own, if I could have my way, this is it. Retire at 40 and watch Netflix all day long. That's life. That's the good life, man. Other people will be like, I'm going to travel the world. I'm going to eat at all of the diners, drive, dives, drive throughs all that stuff that I see on the food. Now, that's the good life. What is the good life? What does it mean that everything works out for your good? If our human definitions are that different, then could it be that the definition that God has for goodness and what your good looks like is a lot different than what you think? Because if, we, if we're honest, I would say that many of us here, most of us in here, would say, this is what my good is. It's for me to live the American dream, to go to church, to have married, to be married, to have kids, to have a couple cars, to have my own home, and to do that. Go to church faithfully until I die, a painless, quick, and easy death. And then I go to heaven for all of eternity. That's what America has suckered us into thinking, is the good life. And a lot of us are drinking that Kool-Aid so that when the hardships come that Paul writes in all these things, when those things come, we begin to question whether I'm believing in the right thing or not. And for a great many of us whose God and our idol is the American dream, then you may be climbing up the wrong ladder trying to get to where you want to go. Because that's not what God says the good life is. Here's what God says. For those God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Here's what God's intent of what is good looks like. Again, I say this to us here in America because you ask people in, in, in nations around the world who are going through persecution, who are going through suffering, and their idea of the good life is not the American dream. They cling to this verse in ways, that we, in ways far different from the way we cling to it. We cling to it and say, God, I need your good. I need to have an extra $10,000 in my retirement account before I retire. Or God, I need, please don't let Social Security run out before I retire. This is what we think is a good life. But for people in places where persecution is rampant, the Middle East and Africa and China and North Korea, that's not the good life. They're just saying, God, I want to be faithful to you. I want to be more like Jesus because that's what Jesus is. That's what Paul is talking about, to be conformed into the likeness of Jesus. That's what it is to be good in the eyes of God. That's what goodness looks like. So all of the things that happen, the hard things, the good things, the in-between things, all of these, God molding us and making us so that we might be more like Jesus Christ, that is God's intent for us. That everything serves that purpose. What purpose? What is the purpose? Verse 28, who have been called according to his purpose. Here's what he's saying. Your life, if you're a child of God, 
<laughs> if, you're a child, if you work for Google, if you work for Google, everything you do is the intellectual property of Google, is it not? As a child of God, everything you are belongs to God because you are bought with a price. You are not your own. You don't live for your own purposes. You live for God's. My will above all else, my purpose remains the art of losing myself in bringing you praise. This is what he's saying. This is the good that he promises, that everything is working together so that you and I might become more like Jesus and that his purpose might be accomplished. That's what we sing, isn't it? When we sing that great, uh, that great bridge, we say, heal my heart and make it clean. Why? Open up my eyes to the things unseen. Why? Show me how to love like you have loved me. Why? Break my heart for what breaks yours. Why would our hearts want to be broken? Because here it is, everything I am for your kingdom's cause. Isn't that what we say? That's what we say as children of God, as people of God. My life is not my own. I live for the honor and the glory of God. This is what it means that my life works all, God works all things together for my good, for the good of those who love him that I'm being more like Christ, and that I'm being prepared for his purposes. No amen to that, because sometimes that's hard, isn't it? Man. I was talking with our intern, Josiah, this week, and he was just really being challenged by the life of this missionary named Helen Rosevere. She was a, a medical missionary. Uh, she died about two years ago at the age of 91. Uh, but she was a medical missionary. She gave her life to Christ. Um, Google her name, Helen Rosevere, Rose and then Veer, Helen Rosevere, uh, felt called to God to go into the mission field. She said, God, I got everything I am for your, for your purposes. And she went to Congo. She started um, hospitals in that place, medical schools, training workers up in that place. Um, she went to a leper colony, started a hospital there, cared for lepers, uh, went back, and then uh, she, she ultimately uh, came back. And during the Congo, the civil war that took place in Congo in the 60s, uh, she was captured by some of the rebel forces. And for five months, okay, five months, uh, she was beaten, uh, she was tortured, she was raped brutally. Just awful, awful things. She was finally rescued by uh, a group of people, and then they took her back home. Uh, after she got well, she came back to Congo, to those very people, and continued to give her life so that they might come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. I mean, the, the, the story and, and, and some of the stuff that you read about her life is just insane. Um, she speaks at great length about what it was like when she was being assaulted and she was being violated by these rebel soldiers. Um, and the presence of God that she experienced in that place. She's spoken three times at the Urbana Missions Convention, and, and as she would talk, whenever she would go and, well, not whenever, but a lot of times she'd go and speak, and she would hold uh, a, a, a long-stem rose, okay, beautiful long-stem rose, Helen Rosevere. She said, I always wanted to be like this rose, fragrant, that people would see and smell its beauty, that people would admire it, people would look at its beauty and say, man, there is a beautiful rose, And then she began to realize the fleeting, transitory nature of that beauty and of that admiration and how quickly that all began to fade. And she felt like what God was doing with that rose is he was plucking off one by one all of the beauty in her. And she said, God, why are you doing this? This hurts. This is painful. God, why would you let my dreams die like that? 
Why would, you, why would you crucify my hope of getting married? Why would you kill my dreams of having a family? Why did you make me leave everything behind in order to go to the mission field? Why did you, I promised my, my sick mother that I would be there, for when, uh, be there with her when she died, but why, why was it that I couldn't be there for her? And she said, one by one, God was stripping all of these things off of me until there was nothing left, no beauty in her. She said, God, why? Look at me. Look at me. The, the, the beauty that I once had is gone. And the only thing left was his bark. And she would take out a knife and she would begin stripping the bark. And she said, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you breaking away from me, stripping away from me? The only thing, now all I, I'm completely vulnerable. Now I'm completely vulnerable. God, why are you doing this? The last thing that showed uh, anybody that I once was this beautiful rose is now being taken away and there's nothing left. And at the end, all she had was this thin white petal stem, but it was sharper than anything she could know. And she said, God's desire for my life was not that I would be this beautiful rose admired and adored by everybody but that I will be a sharpened arrow in the hands of God to live for his purposes and not for my own. If that's our life, it's his purpose for which we live, not our own. He has bought us with the ultimate price. C.T. Studd said, if Jesus Christ is God and he died for me, then no sacrifice is too much for me to make for him. Whatever the cost thou hast taught me to say, Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, whatever comes in all these things, God works together for the good of those who love him. First thing that we see is everything will ultimately turn out for your good. That's the first promise that we have as a people of God. Second thing that we see is that God loves you and he will never stop loving you. God loves you and he will never stop loving you. Verse 37, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For none of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guys, the only way that we can, that we can live through the all things that he talked about in that first thought is if we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God loves us. And the language of Paul here, the language of Paul, he says, for I am convinced, in verse 38, for I am convinced, absolutely certain. Are you convinced today that God loves you and that he will never stop loving you? Do you believe that even in the face of hardship, in the face of danger, in the face of dreams that are deferred, delayed, even denied, and that die, you, are you convinced that if you don't get into the school of your dreams, that if you don't get that job that you really and desperately want to get into, if the person you think you want to marry ends up not wanting to marry you, are you still convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that God loves you and that he will never stop loving you no matter what circumstances the world might throw at you in this life? I don't know if you guys know, I don't know if you guys know, but our youth director, Kenny, <laughs> Kenny uh, recently asked a girl that he was dating to marry him. Oh, my gosh, did you guys know that? Uh, and guess what? She said yes. 
said, yes, round of applause for Kenny, yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, our, our worship pastor, uh, Albert, he yesterday also asked a girl that he wanted to marry to marry him, and she said yes also. Round of applause for Uncle Albie. Okay, anyways, um, <laughs> um, so Kenny, man, I didn't ask him if I could say this, but so Kenny walked up a mountain with Jenna, right? And he had this rock, uh, a rock that he had bought, and he was fixing to give it to her and say, hey, you know, will you marry me? Will you spend the rest of your life with me? And uh, that was his plan, and it ended up uh, being executed in that way. And so uh, they walked up the mountain, he asked, and uh, she said yes, right? Praise God for that. But what if she didn't say yes? What if she hadn't said yes? Uh, but she didn't say no either. It would be a lot easier if she said no. Then it would be like, oh, okay, you know, I'll, I'll just uh, walk down by myself from this mountain and save this ring for somebody else. But what if instead of saying either yes or no, she says something completely different? Hey, uh, Jenna, he gets down on his knee. Will you marry me? And she's like, Kenny, what are you doing? Uh, we, like, hardly know each other. Uh, this is, like, completely catching me off guard. I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for all this. He's like, stop messing around. Why are you acting like me? Don't mess around like that, right? Stop trolling people. She's like, no, 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 no. I'm serious. Like, uh, uh, I, I don't know what to say. He's like, come on. Will you marry me? Just answer me. It's like, when, can I tell you next week? Like, no. What are you talking about? I, it, simple question. We, we've been through all these things together. We talked about marriage. She's like, uh, yeah, what would you... Uh, what would you think about me signing like a, a prenuptial agreement? He's like, what? what? Why would you even think that way? Just answer the question. All right, all right, all right. Um, uh, okay, okay. Um, will you marry me? Okay, okay. Maybe. Like, what are you talking about? Maybe. That's terrible. That's the worst thing that you could possibly say. Maybe. Maybe. That's awful. And, and they walk back down that mountain together, and he's all confused as to whether she wants to be with him or not. Imagine they get married then. She said maybe, and then, hey, here are the vows. Kenny, do you have this woman? I do. Jenna, will you have him? Maybe. Maybe. I, 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 I guess I do. And they get married. The first sign of trouble, Kenny's going to be wondering, does she love me or does she not? Why is, she, why is she coming home from work late today? Oh, my gosh, she must not love me. She must not want to make me dinner today. Oh, my gosh, why did she burn the food? She must not love. And he's thinking of mine because he's not convinced of her love. Thankfully, though, that's not the way it happened. She said, yes, 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 a thousand times. Yes, Kenny, if I had a thousand lies, I would give them a. I don't know if that's exactly how she said it because he didn't, I, I didn't ask for the whole story. But that's. If she said that, then he would be completely convinced. Yes, Kenny, I was waiting for you. I was wondering if you really liked it, then you should have put a ring on it. But I was tired. I didn't want to say that because I didn't want to pressure you. But now here I am. No longer Beyonce. I am your fiance. That's what one of the guys in our Harvest 201 class said. I never wanted to be Beyonce. I just wanted to be with you. I'm ready to be your purpose-driven wife. I'm ready. Let's do it. I said, they go on into marriage. This is great. Life is awesome for him because he's convinced of her love that nothing that happens in this life is going to be able to shake him from the confidence that he is loved by the woman that he has given himself to. Paul is saying you need to be convinced. You need, and, and that's what he says. For I am convinced, verse 37, verse 38, for I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Are you convinced of that love? Because he goes on and he says, this is how, this is how convinced I am. Okay. He says, neither death nor... He, he lists 10 things here, but he starts with death, the ultimate separator. And he says, not even death is able to dislodge you from the love of God in your life. Maybe death can separate or, or hardship can separate your love from God, but it will never separate God's love from you. You may let go of God in the face of all of these hardships, but he says God will never let go of you. And you need to know this. You've got to know this because it's true. And if you know it, it's going to anchor your soul no matter what happens in this life. Several, um, I think it was like a few weeks ago, Olive and I, we wanted to watch a movie. And so uh, we got this movie called A Quiet Place. Has anyone seen A Quiet Place? Shh, very quiet. Quiet Place. Uh, Olive really wanted to watch it with her parents because her parents don't speak English that well. And because that word, all, all they say is shh, that's all they say. They could understand it. So she wanted to watch it with them, but... Uh, I think they uh, ended up not watching it or doing something else, so she had to settle for me. So we're watching A Quiet Place together, and um, in the movie, um, I hope you're not going to watch it because I'm going to ruin it for you, but when it gets to the point where I'm going to ruin it, I'll tell you, you can cover your ears, but you'll miss the whole point of this illustration. <laughs> so in the movie, it's kind of this like uh, Armageddon or dystopia, like everything is, everyone is dead basically, but there's this one family, like Jim Halpert from The Office is the head of this family, and, um, and his real life wife is his, his, his fake wife also, and then he's got like three kids, and uh, some animal or some alien has destroyed all of human life, and somehow they're like, they still remained, and um, the animals are blind though, or the aliens are blind. There's always a fatal flaw. So they can't see anything, but they've got impeccable hearing. So if you make a noise, like if, I, if it hears uh, Ellen Park drinking something out of her Starbucks, then the, they, they wake up and they start listening, and then psh, they fly over, and they, then they, like, knock you over, and you die. It's, it's, it's crazy. That's kind of how it goes. And so everyone, apparently everyone has gotten knocked over and died, except for, like, Jim Halpert's family. And there's, like, five of them. At the beginning of the movie, there's this, their youngest kid, and this guy's like, you know, he's such a bonehead. Like, he knows that you're not supposed to make any noise because you'll die. I mean, everyone else is dead. But he's got this toy, and his dad takes the batteries out of the toy so that he won't be able to make noise with it. But uh, they're leaving to go to some, like, uh, bunker down somewhere in some house. But his sister takes the batteries for whatever reason, and she, like, gives it to the boy. And so they're walking, they're walking, and they're making crunching noise on the, on the, on the leaves. And dad's like, shh. Like, that's literally all the, all the uh, dialogue there is in the movie. Just shh, shh. Uh, really easy to be an actor in this movie, right, to memorize your lines. And she's walking around, shh. You said it in the wrong time. You shouldn't have said it. <laughs> but they're walking around uh, in, this, uh, in this quiet place. It's a quiet world. And here they go. And the boy's, like, playing with this thing. And the, the, the rest of the family's walking ahead, and he put the batteries in there. Like, he, I mean, gosh, why did you do this? So he's playing with it, and then he, like, drops it or something. goes, bing, 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 bing. And Jim Halpert's like, but he can't yell, right? He can't yell because he'll die. He's, like, running back to him, like, running. Chariots of fire. Dun, 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 dun. And then right before he gets to the boy, the animal alien, like, whoosh, kills him, and then the boy dies. Oh, it's terrible, right? So the... Uh, sister for the rest of the movie it's like oh, dad hates me now dad hates me I gave him the batteries dad hates me uh, but Jim doesn't really hate her 
Right? He doesn't hate her. He loves her. He's his, his daughter. So throughout the movie, all these things happen, and, you know, they do all these things, and he keeps saying shh to everybody else around, and uh, there are certain things that she wants to do, but uh, Dad, Jim, won't let her come with him, her, uh, come with him and, and all these things. So she thinks, oh, gosh, she hates me, he hates me, he hates me, he hates me. Get to the end of the movie. Um, this is crazy. Like, the mom is pregnant, too, and somehow, somehow she gives birth to a baby and doesn't make any noise. It's crazy, right? So... <laughs> But at the end of the movie, okay, the, the alien animals are, like, flying around. They're, like, getting ready to kill everybody, kill everybody that's, that's left. And the two kids who are remaining are in this pickup truck, and they're trying to escape. Right? There's a lot of stuff. I kind of maybe fell asleep during the middle of it, so I don't remember why they're in all of these things and, and how this is happening. But they're in a pickup truck, and I think Jim Halpert is looking for them, right? So they're in the pickup truck, and, oh, they made noise. They made noise, and so here comes this alien. This alien is coming, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to kill uh, the, the girl and the boy. And in that moment, Jim is running to his kids, but he realizes it's too late. And so this is what he does. He looks at his daughter, and all of the fears and all of the worries and all of the doubts and all of the questions that she has, she looks at her dad, and he looks at her, And he mouthed these words, and he says, I love you. I have always loved you. I have always loved you. And and this is going to sound stupid when I say it, because this is like supposed to be a powerful climactic moment in the sermon, but it's not going to. And the only thing he does in order to take the alien away from them is he has to make noise. And so he yells out loud. He says, ah. And then the alien, instead of going to her, comes and kills him. And he dies. Oh, sorry, I forgot to tell you to close your ears. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Shoot. But that's what happens, right? My bad. And, yeah, no, there's nothing else to it. That's what happens. He dies. (laughs) But that's what he says, and it's powerful. Olive might have been crying, or I might have been crying. Nobody might have been crying, but it's powerful because he says, I have loved you, and I have always loved you, no matter what it seemed like to you, no matter what it looked like. I love you, and I always have. God says to you, whatever you're going through, whatever you thought about me, I've heard a thousand stories of what they think I'm like, but this is the truth about your Father in heaven. He says to you, as you go through the difficulty of of, of challenges of high school, as you go through the the challenges of puberty or raising a child in puberty, as you go through all of the, the struggles in your life, he says, I love you. I have always loved you. How do you know? It says in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. If he gave you his best, then he won't withhold the rest. He loves you. He showed that to you in his son. Don't judge his love by your circumstances, by the trouble, by the hardship, by the problems, by your failures, but judge his love by his sacrifice at Calvary of his son. 
and lean on that and stand on that, not on what you think your life ought to look like, not on what you think your purposes are in this life, not on what you think is good in your life, but upon what God says is good and what God demonstrates his own love in this way. While we were sinners, Christ died for us, undeserving. But in crying out, he says, I love you and I will never stop. That's the second thing we have to see. Then the third thing, last thing, whatever life throws at you, Okay, whatever life throws at you, you are a super conqueror. I know, <laughs> that's not a real word, but just play with me a little bit, okay? You are a super conqueror. When you think of uh, superheroes, I don't know how many superheroes there are that have the word super, and I can only think of Superman, uh, and he's pretty awesome, the man of steel, right? He's not just a man who's very strong. He's actually a nerdy, geeky newspaper reporter. But when you put super in front of it, he's able to do things that no man can do. Think about what, think about what kind of a uh, superhero, super conqueror would be. Because we're not just talking about a man who's super. He's talking about a conqueror, right? If, I, I, I Googled movies with the word conqueror, and I thought there would be a good one, but there was one movie called The Conqueror. I think John Wayne was in it, but it got terrible reviews, and no one knows anything about it. But imagine you're, like, people call you a conqueror. Hey, you are a conqueror, Stephen. You're a conqueror, Nathan. You're a conqueror, uh, Jamie. Whoever you are, you're a conqueror. But then you add this word super conqueror. He's saying, this is who you are. Holy cow. That's huge. A super conqueror. This is what he says in, in chapter 8, verse 37, no, in all these things, okay, remember all these things in, in trouble or hardship, persecution, death, famine, nakedness, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Three words in English, more than conquerors. One word in Greek, super conqueror, right, with a hyphen making it one word. It's what he's saying. You are a super conqueror, able to do things that not even a conqueror can do because the spirit that raised Christ from the dead is living in you. That's the benefit of being in the, in the family of God that we have that we don't understand so many times because we live like we're defeated. Over the summer, Elijah, our, our six-year-old, uh, spent a lot of time playing with his seven-year-old cousin, Barnabas, and Barnabas got him into this like Marvel superhero game on the iPad called the Contest of Champions. I think that's what it's called. Contest, is that right? Contest of Champions? Contest of Champions. And you start out with this, like, rinky-dinky little uh, superhero. So, like, you're Spider. You start at, like, Spider-Man level or something like that. And, and, and you fight against these guys. And then, like, Hulk will, like, you know, dispose of Superman, uh, Spider-Man really easily. And so Spider-Man dies. But if you beat, it's, it's kind of, you know, you, you got to work your way up. And so Spider-Man, and then you get bigger guys and bigger guys. And you can get Iron Man and Black Panther and people like that. And then you can also win these, like, coins or, or eggs or something and then you open it up and it says oh you got an extra star and then if you get an extra star then you get even stronger and so the strongest guy in this game was called Thanos right and so Elijah and Barnabas like running around saying oh we got Thanos we got one star Thanos and two star Thanos and and daddy we're so close today I wanted to get three star Thanos and, and all that stuff and so you know, we're like, all right, that's cool so one time we had said stop playing on on the iPad let's like play do something rest your eyes so that your brain doesn't get rewired by the dangerous effects of the iPad and things like that. And so, you know, they're like, let's do contest of champions, Barnabas and me against daddy, yeah. And so they think there's like a great, you know, I could destroy them, but I'm, I'm, 
So I said, who are you guys? I said, daddy is, I am three-star Thanos because I'm the champion. And they're like, no, pause. No, Uncle DL, we're three-star Thanos. You can be somebody else. So I said, who who else is strong? I'm going to be five-star Thanos. They're like, there's no such thing as five-star Thanos day. You got to, you got to like play within the rules. So I said, all right, you guys are three-star Thanos. Then I'm going to be, I'm going to be five-star Appa. That means five-star daddy. I'm five-star dad. And I, and, and before they even said go, I started like throwing them on the bed and wrestling with them. And yeah, I'm the champion. It is like they do in WWE. They say, yeah, I'm the champion. And then they get blindsided. They get hit. So I'm setting them up to do this. But then they like. They think I'm really trying to fight with them. Like, they really want to conquer me. Right? So I think they're just going to jump up. They think they're, like, hitting me and kicking me and, ah, stop, stop, stop. And so I say, okay, okay, you guys win. I quit, I quit, I quit. And then I walk out of the room. They're like, what happened, Daddy? I said, you guys are really fighting me. I thought we are just doing this, like, game. And, and I walked out of there, and they, thought we, they said, we thought you were five-star appa. But as I walked out of there, I felt like zero-star appa. I felt like this little wimpy guy just getting beat up. They're like kicking me. Like they're not two and three years old anymore. They're like strong and they got muscles and they've been watching contests of champions so they know how to fight. And so they're like beating me up. And I said, I don't want to play with you guys anymore. So I walked out of that room and feeling like, man, I don't feel like five-star daddy anymore. Do you ever feel like that in Christian life when these three-star troubles come up against you? and these five-star hardship, and two-star persecution, and they start fighting against you. And you start feeling like you're a no-star little you. The promise in Scripture, if you're a child of God, he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why? Because, hey, any hardship They'll knock you over. Any hardship. You've seen this all the time. Hardship will ruin the best of people. But when God enters into your team, you become more than a conqueror. God plus one person can destroy death, can destroy hardship, can destroy any kind of trouble and any kind of problem. The challenge is that we don't go to God. And so we just remain in our zero-star us feeling like we're defeated and wondering why the promises and the love of God have failed us. But he says, you are super conqueror through him who loved us. This is who you are. You're not defeated. You're not resigned to a life of of sin and defeat and and being a mess up all the time. You are more than a, a super conqueror through him who loved you, you are able to overcome fear and overcome despair and overcome anger and overcome the vices in your life. You're a super conqueror, more than you could ever dare to imagine. This is who you are. This is who I am. This is who we are, church. We are more than conquerors. I'm reminded of this every year right around this time. Last weekend, we had a concert opera concert, benefit concert for the Joshua Foundation. Whenever I'm there, um, I'm always led to think about where we came from and where we're trying to go and what this foundation is all about and why we do work in Ecuador. Our work in in Ecuador and the foundation, kind of its beginnings happen. You guys may or may not know this, but seven years ago, uh, one of our college students named Joshua Kim passed away in the mission field in Ecuador. 
And in that time, it was verses like this that were so huge. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Almost every one of us who were there, as well as his parents, as well as the leadership of our church, said, you know what? Um, We can't run from this. We're not going to run from this. Two days after he passed away, we went back to the town right outside of where uh, he went missing in a river and ended up passing away. And they asked us, why would you come back here? Why would you come back to us? We don't deserve to have you come anymore. Why would you come back to Cabeno? And we told them in no uncertain terms the promises of Romans 8. For we are convinced that neither death nor life nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate the furious, relentless love of God from the objects of his affection, even if it means we come all the way down to the remotest parts of the jungles of the Amazonian Ecuador. The love of God is that powerful. And death will not stop because we, Antico, his family, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In death, in life, I'm confident, and we're covered by the power of his great love. There's nothing that can separate us from him. And so we go back, and we start a foundation, and we send a guy, we find a guy named Gonzalo who's a native Ecuadorian, and some of the stories are pretty amazing, but you meet Gonzalo, and there's, he's, a, he's a normal person just like us who just loves Jesus with everything within him. And he said, God, my life is yours an arrow piercing through the darkness aimed at the heart of satanic territory. God, this is my life used for the glory of God. And for him to go down there, he, he gave up a, a fiancé who said initially, I'll go with you wherever you go. But when he decided to go to the mission field, she said, except there. He gave up a high-paying job that would have supported his poor family who lived in the, in the mountains, in the jungles, in the forest. But he gave that up in order that he would live for the purposes of God. And within a few years of getting there, uh, his brother died in a car accident. When you talk about spiritual warfare, this is huge. It's real. His father passed away in the arms of one of the men we met last year in the mission field in Ecuador trying to save his life in order that he would know the hope of Christ. We said after second person and his family passed away, hey, man, uh, we didn't say it like that because he doesn't speak English, but basically, hey, man, uh, you, don't need to, you don't need to do this. You don't need to stay. And, and he said, my life is for God's glory. And he said, I'm trying to think the exact words. He said, he said I want to live and die as a soldier in the army of the Lord. This will not take me out of Ecuador. This will plant me deeper in that I'm more committed than ever because the Lamb of God is worthy of my life. And I don't know what the latest is, but as of last year, this time last year, we had 300 people been baptized. Six churches have been started, and the kingdom of God is breaking forth like a banshee, unstoppable in that place because he's convinced that he's more than a conqueror through Christ who loved him. Are you that con- confident, that convinced 
that whatever happens in life, that his purpose is greater, that he's working everything for you. What is, as Paul ends this screaming argument of God loves you and nothing can separate you from the love of God, he ends this with his final exhibit, and he hoists up as his final picture to leave you with. He lifts up the Son of God. And the very things that will not separate you from the love of God, he says, look at Jesus. He willingly subjected himself to these things. To trouble, to hardship, to persecution, to famine, to nakedness, to danger, to sword. And the almighty son of God was slain at the cross a seeming victim to all of these things. But the conqueror would not stay down because he wanted to show that the same spirit that would raise Christ from the dead is the same spirit that lives in every child of God. You are more than a conqueror through him who loved. And in case you doubted, in case you doubted, it is a screaming message at the cross that says, I love you and I have always loved you. But it wasn't a cry of defeat as it was in a quiet place. But it was a cry of victory, of triumph, the cry that only one who is more than a conqueror could cry, it is finished. The mission is accomplished and I have secured for the people of God everything that they need in order to be more than a conqueror in this life. This is our inheritance. This is what we have. This is ours in Christ. We just need to live in it. We just need to believe it. We need to stand in it. And we need to rise up, super conquerors, through the one who loved you and through the one who loved me. Let's pray together. Where are we struggling to appropriate the benefits 